Welcome to Retail in Focus, the Retail Systems Podcast. I'm Will McCurdy, Content Editor of Retail Systems. Today, we're going to take a look at the type of technology retail is using to navigate the process expanding into new European markets. The differences between the 44 countries of Europe go far beyond how the citizens talk, sound, or act. Not only are these consumers interested in different goods from their retailers, the way in which we want to interact with them also differs markedly. Payment methods which are mainstream in some countries are almost unknown in others. And despite the single market, VAT regulation and tax protocols differ heavily between countries, creating yet another barrier for retailers who wish to tap into the 3.25 trillion European market. And if the pandemic hadn't already amplified the challenges of going global enough, by adding a dose of chaos to worldwide supply chains, new regulations are soon set to emerge governing payments. As a result, many retailers are exploring how technology can smooth out the complex journey of launching in new markets. To delve further into these challenges, as well as impossible solutions, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Gary Hammond, Head of Product at Coma. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Gary. Thank you. My name is Gary Hammond. I'm the Head of Product here at Como. At Como, we're a SaaS-based e-commerce platform who kind of specialize and focus on cross-border international commerce. No, no, uh, thanks for volunteering your time to come and um, it'd be great to gather insights. So um, just to jump into the first question for our listeners. So from the clients that you work with that are, that are looking to expand, what potential issues are you seeing for retailers launching in new European markets? Sure. So I guess there's one thing I'd like to maybe get out of the way here, and it's the elephant in the room, perhaps, of Brexit. I'm in Republic of Ireland here, and Northern Ireland is still in the EU customs territory, but it's part of the United Kingdom. So we have merchants in the UK who, for example, now have to consider Northern Ireland as a kind of an international market and have had to make some difficult decisions around maybe not even shipping goods to that territory in the same way, the same rules that apply for the rest of the European Union. In conjunction with that, I guess the issue of Brexit, me as a buyer in the Republic of Ireland, I'd no longer purchase off UK uh, websites because the implications of customs and delays and, you know, it's kind of locked it off for me a little bit. So these are immediate issues. And I guess there's ways of addressing these things. But if your store is based in the UK, you fulfill everything from the UK and all the legal entities in the UK, that poses a challenge now due to supply chains and regulation. So there's a question about uh, strategies about, okay, if I want to set up, say, a base in a European country, EU country, people are now considering essentially outsourcing the operation of their business in those territories using managed services, where essentially all of the day-to-day running of the store, fat reconciliation, everything happens with these types of providers. And essentially they send you back a check, let's say at the end of the month for the difference. Very difficult to kind of break out of any country, uh, particularly, I guess, in the UK now in the short term until things get figured out. But yeah, there's a lot of legislation, regulation and customer experience knock-on effects. If someone orders something, it arrives two weeks later than they anticipated and it comes with a customs bill by the courier. Yeah, it's, it's weird to think that a country which is only an hour and a half away and speaks almost exactly the same language is treated as a foreign country from a trade standpoint. And it's just something that retailers are going to end up having to deal with. That's an excellent example. So moving on, how do payment preferences differ between European countries? And uh, how can retailers make sure their offerings reflect 
and take advantage of these differences? Yeah, so I mean, the main kind of consideration here is the customer experience. Digital commerce, e-commerce, all about conversions. The number one thing I think most e-commerce managers would like to do on the experience side is remove barriers to conversion. And I was surprised myself a little bit when I found this out just over a year ago when I started working at Kumo was that when we get into individual countries, the way people expect to pay for things are different. Even though it's a global internationalized website, I get to the checkout step and the payment option that I expect to see is not there. A good example of this is Ideal, the payment method very popular in the Netherlands. It's over 70% of people will use that. We don't use that here. I don't think you guys use that in the UK. Likewise, in Spain, Italy, there are regional flavors of preferences. And I think we're going to touch on kind of biometrics, perhaps. But the evolution of the payments, the ways people do payments is changing radically year to year. So I guess the consideration is from your platform perspective, assuming you have the ability to collect different types of payments, is if a buyer is in the Netherlands, we really should show them ideal number one. If we show them Visa MasterCard, we may have straight away a block there because people, they don't want to use that. Or I think more critically, uh, certainly ideal in that case has to be made available. But also there is legislation within countries that aren't necessarily EU legislation, but there are some countries that have significant problems with credit card debt. And it's legislated in those countries that you're not allowed to offer credit card as a default payment method. You have to do a debit or an offline payment as the default. So it's a minefield. Yeah, there's just so many different ideas of how things would work in different countries, and they're changing all the time. I mean, for all we know, in five, six years, they could be using something different in the Netherlands, or your policies could have changed regarding credit card debt. So um, moving on, could you talk about some of the issues different European tax and VAT regimes can cause for UK retailers launching in the regions? Yeah, well, this, I guess, is quite timely. So in the European Union, from the 1st of July, there's an update to VAT rules on cross-border commerce. So there was a lot of red tape confusion about do we charge VAT, what VAT rate should we charge, and so on uh, in the past, and reconciling these things at the end of the year was difficult or on, on VAT return basis. So essentially, in the European Union now, if I currently, before the 1st of July, buy something in Italy, I will be charged the Italian VAT rate. But from the 1st of July, I'll be charged the Irish VAT rate. So I guess if you've set up maybe a legal entity, within, so say in a scenario, a UK retailer actually has a legal entity which has VAT positions and operates within a European country. The European Union is a land of regulations, as we know. Every year, there seems to be some fundamental change that we need to consider. It's one of those things, do we have the ability to even operate in one of these countries ourselves? Like what sort of compliance do we need to be aware of and, and how can we make sure we don't get uh, caught out by something too late? Yeah, exactly. I mean, businesses just need a way of navigating the red tape um, if they want to get successful commerce done effectively. So that links really well into my next question because you highlighted Europe as a land of regulation. Could you talk about the uh, current regulatory background impacting UK retailers in the EU? Uh, for example, the uh, EU geo-blocking regulation. And uh, could you talk a little bit how this could impact planned expansions in the region? Yeah, look, I think on the EU geo-blocking regulation, I mean, there's various strands to what that regulation is. So I guess we're talking about here about the sale of goods without a physical uh, delivery. So the example is a Belgian customer wants to buy a refrigerator, finds the best deal on a German website. 
the customer should be entitled to collect and order that product and have it delivered to their address themselves. But at the moment, I think, or prevailing uh, thought has been that, okay, we're even though we're EU, we don't want to sell this product to that country because it's going to cost us too much money to ship it. So I guess for the rules, this may affect the UK, is that the European markets and stores become a lot more competitive. There's a lot more choice. You know, there's nothing to stop me now buying something in um, anywhere, uh, Poland, uh, you know. So I guess it's really just about opening up that marketplace within the EU. So I think the concern there is maybe the increased competition that will naturally fall from that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to end up shaking things up over the next few years um, for the better or worse. So we kind of touched on this earlier, but looking forward, biometrics is set to have an increased influence on the way we pay for goods and services. However, it seems that these different countries in Europe seem to have quite different ideas about how to regulate biometrics. How could these biometrics related issues impact retailers launching in new regions? So I think, again, there's a trend generally in e-commerce around things like payments, around things like logistics. And the traditional way, and a lot of people still do it this way, is your e-commerce platform will have an integration with one, two, three payment types, manual integrations that need to be updated. But there's a real move towards PSPs, payment service providers, to essentially offload this kind of risk. So... In the case here of biometrics, biometrics are covered under GDPR. There's currently requirements legislated for there. But I guess uh, in the UK now, there may be divergence uh, between what happens with the GDPR as the biometric space evolves. So I think just on biometrics themselves, though, I think I read something that 30% of people who get an error when they put the credit card information the first time in will not fill it back in. So purely talking about conversions, if it's a fingerprint scan or a facial scan or whatever the technique may be in the future, that eliminates that because you won't have to have that form filling. But I think going back to my point, the drive that we're seeing a lot of merchants move towards across these fundamental areas around payments, logistics, and so on, is to essentially do a single integration with a PSP, payment service provider at this point, and kind of let them deal with it. I mean, there's a little bit of a premium on those rates. But other than the fact it opens up a lot more payment methods for you and you don't have to have all these different integrations, they do keep on top of the legislation and kind of make sure that you don't encounter these problems organically yourself. No, and that's something that sounds quite useful to me because I wouldn't like to be in the position of being a small retailer having to deal with all of these new biometrics methods and identification methods and all the associated regulation. It seems like just another problem that you just might not have the capacity to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on that as well, I mean, it is possible to forge a fingerprint. So I guess that's probably something the way everything's going, deep fakes, everything, the machine learning aspect of privacy, uh, bypassing people's privacy and consent. So it's inevitable that there's going to be a lot of movement in this uh, area in terms of legislation in the next years. Cool. So moving on uh, slightly further away from science fiction, the EU has 24 official languages and eight currencies other than the zero. How can retailers manage making transactions using all of these without creating unnecessary complexity? Yeah, so again, the decision to go international is a big one to take. And a part of that is kind of the technology consideration around it. 
So there are various ways you can look at this, okay? One is to basically operate a different web store in different territories. So you'll be familiar with that approach when you maybe arrive on an American website, which has UK presence, it will say, oh, did you mean to go to our UK store? And you go over there. So I guess that separate store itself, you can kind of do what you want, make it local, and it's kind of managed in the UK and not in the US. So everything is, you, you imagine, uh, well-controlled. But then the other, um, as, as kind of we're moving into more headless architectures and this concept of multiple stores for my business online doesn't make sense, is really to, when you internationalize a platform, say it's a single platform, a single storefront, how do you go about ensuring that, yes, I can have custom price lists, I can have different VAT position or VAT rates, I can have different couriers in these areas, I can have a different, essentially, flavor of my e-commerce uh, configuration per country. So it's a fundamental consideration in terms of uh, the technology implementation. But yeah, it's something to be aware of because the way, again, we write and talk in uh, the UK and Ireland is probably very similar, but you know, we're probably a bit too sarcastic for some uh, territories or the way we would have call to action buttons and the verbs we would use. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the content aspect of it is huge. Yeah, communicating between different countries, it goes far beyond just the literal translations, the Google Translate aspect of it. It's um, something that requires a good bit of thought. So moving to slightly uh, more technical waters. So looking at underlying IT infrastructures, how are businesses operating in different parts of Europe and looking to expand, making use of the cloud and cloud infrastructures? Sure. Well, look, I'm working in Kumo, which is a SaaS cloud platform. So I'm probably a little bit biased on this, but I had worked in Magento previously and other technologies and managing and the risk involved in self-hosting, self-premise. It's not worth it for most people unless they're at a very big scale. So I guess what uh, in the way that payment service providers are basically getting rid of a lot of the risk and maintenance and worry about payment methods, international payment methods, the converse is, or the, it's true as well for SaaS-based uh, commerce platforms. Uh, so essentially, generally, they're multi-tenant platforms, which all are managed as a single core. So yeah, I mean, the Adobe acquisition of Magento as well, everything is moving towards the cloud in that scenario too. Yeah, I mean, what you mentioned about risk reduction, I think is really important because I see all of these big retail outages as a journalist every few weeks. And I'm always just so concerned about how the really bad days that these IT people, these companies must be having, just a potential yeah. for systems and databases to just go completely wrong. Yeah, and I mean, a DevOps infrastructure, are like that's not a job for me, but like, yeah, those guys live on a different planet. Um, I mean, it's really, you know, they're at the forefront of a massive technology stack with lots of merchants who depend on them and just all of this like ransomware, everything that's happening uh, everywhere. Yeah, uh, if you have to manage that yourself, it, it's a lot uh, to responsibility to take on. So uh, as we move towards the end of the podcast, I know we've touched on a lot of these points before, but how do you see the European retail landscape changing over the next 12 months? And uh, what does this mean for UK retailers launching in the region? Yeah, so we will... I guess certainly to summarize, and this is probably what people have been saying nonstop for the last year, but it's starting to happen now as we move out of lockdowns uh, in the UK and across the, the EU, what will happen to the brick and mortar retail versus the online retail? So I think what happened a year ago was a real wake-up call for a lot of people. Previously, I'd worked on a service side of the business, working with merchants kind of consultatively, and those guys were pulling their hair out a lot of the time. 
because they couldn't get the, the investment uh, from businesses. They always saw it as the last store on the on the list of importance when it comes to brick and mortar. So that's obviously changed in the last year. So I think as these digital and you know the channel becomes the channel in the sense that there's no more like silo over here and the the store is there. So uh, at the moment we're seeing a lot of people, and I'm sure uh, everyone is of you know these omni-channel retailers making sure that they can do all of the order online collect and store that all of these things sing and talk well to each other but just again i come back to the uk focus on this i mean we're, we're only a few months after uh brexit and that's a lot of uh already a lot of uh, difficulty that people are having there but i guess as we diverge now in our legislation it's a challenge and the challenge is the choice to sell ourselves directly to set up presences in those territories directly or to look to outsource the operation of our store to a third party. Yeah, it's certainly not an easy time to make these decisions as there's just so many factors at play. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot more, you know, we're, we're a platform ourselves, but just kind of more anecdotal maybe evidence we're kind of getting is that, you know, a lot of people at the moment are looking more at the strategy rather than the traditional re-platform kind of, oh, we need a new website, need to look nicer. So there does seem to be a lot more kind of consultative work going on with the agencies and, and with merchants to understand what I should be doing now, now that this is the new uh, reality. And they finally have, in a lot of cases, they finally have the buy-in that they were looking for from the business to, to really kick it on. So if our listeners want to learn more about Como, where would you send them? Sure. Uh, our website is Como.com. So it's K-O-O-O-M-O.com. So I guess that's uh, the best place to go. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Gary. Uh, that's been really no insightful. I mean, um, there's just so much going on that's affecting retailers at the moment who are trying to expand their businesses. And I think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Enjoy the day. Bye.